Lots of people, when introducing speakers, say that they need no introduction, whereupon they go on to give them long introductions. I don't propose to do that with Dr. Henry Kissinger, as if you're someone who's never heard of him, I doubt you'll be listening to the Secrets of Statecraft podcast in the first place. We're very fortunate to have Dr. Henry Kissinger, who clearly has no thoughts about retiring at the age of 98. Henry, history as an academic discipline has always been a very important part of your life, hasn't it? Did you have a charismatic history teacher who sparked your interest in the subject? Or was it an inescapable part of your background and upbringing in 1920s and 1930s Germany? No, uh, there is a, uh, I would say there is a starting point to it. Uh, I was, as a, as a young, as a child, was interested in reading Roman history for some reason. And, uh, but the real interest developed uh, when uh, when I was in the army, and I became acquainted with a man called, by the name of Fritz Kramer, who had a, 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 a was a German conservative who had left Germany and found himself in the American army, where he wore a monocle and a strange man. Uh, person by those standards but he awoke my interest in systematic history and he recommended reading Spengler and other philosophers of history and since then uh, I was about 19 at that time I've been dealing I've been working on it systematically Yes, well, Spengler came up as part of your senior undergraduate thesis, um, didn't it? It's when you were studying at Harvard. Uh, you wrote The Meaning of History, Reflections on Spengler, Toynbee and Kant. Well, I was uh, fascinated by his concept, which today I take for granted, but it was new to me then, that every aspect of a society is really part of a historical theme and that you can learn about societies, not just by reading the history consecutively, but by studying its architecture, its philosophy. Uh, And I think that is true. And it uh, became part of my later reflections on, on history and politics. And so you can see um, a sort of structure, a meaning in the past. Well, not a literal structure, uh, because events appear unpredictably, and each generation has to react to them by the values and standards and convictions it has developed. But there are comparable themes that appear. They're not identical. They have to be looked at by analogy. And history repeats itself, not in exactly the same sequence, but it repeats itself by comparable, by comparable events. 
do you think uh, mankind learns from history? Can you think of any examples of that happening? It depends on, on the leaders. For Churchill, the history was crucial. And some his student asked him once what he could do to learn about statesmanship, and he said, study history, study history, study history. And I think many of the great statesmen had a, a profound conception of history, but uh, they had to shape it for their, for their own period. If you take de Gaulle, who was a contemporary of Churchill, his notion of history was not identical with, with Churchill's. Churchill's was a consecutive evolution in which uh, the past strengthened you for dealing with the present, but it was not simply a cookbook from which you could learn. Uh, for De Gaulle, history was an example in which France could restore itself to its greatness. It wasn't so much individual events from which you could learn, but it was the grandeur of, of the performance. And uh, since the God believed uh, for, for Churchill, the issue was to derive strength from British history and apply it to a new circumstance, which was an isolated Britain under mortal threat. Uh, for the goal, history was something from which to re-educate his society. Yes. But if he hadn't had that profound conviction, he could not have done that. Yes, it... it um... Uh, reminds us really, in a sense, that Churchill was the last of the Whigs when it came to um, to writing history. I'm, I'm very interested in your doctoral thesis, um, which was Peace, Legitimacy and the Equilibrium, the study of the statesmanship of Castlereagh and Metternich, both of whom, of course, were very interested in history of the past. Um, it... Uh, it established, and um, it was, of course, about the diplomacy that established peace in Europe after the Napoleonic Wars, but it established this concept of legitimacy as being central to understanding what states can and cannot do in international relations. And the theory, I feel, has, has held up remarkably well over the past 66 years since you wrote it. But what do you think um, of that theory in the light of recent events? Well, the challenge after great appeals is in the name of what you're going to reconstruct society and, 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 and history. And you can, of course, attempt to do it on the basis of power. And you can do it by inventing a new ideology and have a kind of religious revival. But the concept of legitimacy is a substitute for power. It enables societies to operate 
coherently on the basis of the conviction of what is uh, proper and appropriate in their circumstances. It has operated quite well in the post-war period of World War II, and it operated for nearly a hundred years after the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, it doesn't automatically give the societies a precise answer, but it gives them an approximation of the limits beyond which they must not go and of the basic direction which is considered appropriate. Uh, now, in the current period, the question is, is what Putin is doing and it's all on the legitimacy of the post-World War II period? Or is it an act of desperation of a society that is declining and that it's trying to find a new place and thinks that it can this new definition by resistance to what it conceives a total overthrow of the historical pattern in which Russia has lived. That is the question which one must answer with respect to Putin. I personally lean to the latter interpretation, not to the former. I do not believe it's an assault that would march westward if it succeeded. Uh, but I agree with the West, with the Western societies that feel they have to stop it at this point before this notion might develop of uh, overthrowing the whole system. But in my analysis of what is happening, it is uh, more an act of desperation of a society that sees an evolution that will lead to its historic uh, performance and that is using force, but it is using the force in a manner that the Western societies identified with what happened in the 20th century and to which they were especially sensitive and which they felt they could not allow to be established whatever its psychological origin. When you were negotiating the end of the Vietnam War um, with Lee Ducteau, or when you were conducting the shuttle diplomacy uh, that tried to end the conflict in the Middle East, do you, um, did you feel the weight of history on your shoulders? Um, how much did you worry about what future generations would think about your efforts, um, how you would be portrayed in history and so on? With respect to the Vietnam War, I did not think that. With respect to the Vietnam War, I, I thought it was a it was a circumstance in which the United States, on which the safety of the world depended, was had engaged, embroiled itself in in a situation 
maybe unwisely, but at the time that Nixon came into office, we had 500,000 people in an area as far away from America as you could be, not only physically, but, but, but culturally. So our view was that when so many other societies depended on us, we could not simply act as if it were a television program that you could turn off and march out. And we've seen in Afghanistan and elsewhere that turning off these enterprises is extraordinarily complex. So that was really the basic conviction that it had to end what we considered honorably. That is, that the people whom we had pledged to defend were not simply abandoned as a tool in a great power struggle or even small power struggle. That was the basic motivation. Now, there were other situations. Um, for example, the uh, role of nuclear weapons, where I felt very deeply that this was an issue on which the judgment of history might importantly depend, that this was a weapon that couldn't be used in the traditional way. But having said this, what I, how did one apply that? And so some control of nuclear weapons, that was the big issue in the detente period. We felt we had an obligation with respect to nuclear weapons to maintain their use if there were no other alternatives but to shrink the alternatives to the smallest responsible number. With respect to that, I didn't have the feeling that history demanded that of us. And I feel that even more with respect to the high-tech technology of the contemporary period, which has no spokesman for its strain, it has only spokesmen for more rapid development and whose implications will be manifold the more complex than those of nuclear weapons. You mentioned um, Richard Nixon. How acute was his sense of history? Did you discuss history with him? Um, uh, do you think his knowledge about the past affected his presidency? Well, the interesting thing about my relation with Nixon was that I had never met him before he appointed me to this position. And I had, in fact, been a principal supporter of Nelson Rockefeller, who was his chief opponent within the Republican Party. Uh, but therefore, when... I joined him, or when he persuaded me to join him, uh, I was astonished how interested he was in a certain kind of history. I would say from the Napoleonic 
period to the present. Probably more than Napoleon III. Um, Napoleon III. <laughs> That's pretty unusual, Henry. <laughs> he wasn't very interested in Napoleon, but he was interested in the rise and decline of Western societies, as he had observed it backward of his own lifetime by about a hundred years. And he could see flashes of the French Second Empire in uh, uh, in in the West of the day. <laughs> That's an extraordinary thought. Well, he felt that there was a point of French decline that was associated with with that, and that, and he was very interested why that had happened and. In the rights of Germany, he, he did not reflect deeply about uh, the Reformation issues like this, but he, he was better educated than most leaders because he read a lot. That's how he occupied his free time. And do you feel that um, a sense of history like that has waned in the uh, the world leaders that that you've met since you were Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, and that's half a century ago. I mean, do you think that uh, today's world leaders read and think about history as much as Richard Nixon did and as much as they ought to? Well, Richard Nixon was not typical of his period, but the, uh, even the other presidents that I, I have known were more concerned with, with history than the generation that it brought up on the internet, which tends to make its judgments more on the basis of reactions to immediate events and on the impact of, of events on, on the immediate situation. And most of the people before the, that I knew before the rise of the internet, they might not have been great scholars of history, but they had more of a respect for history than one finds today. Let's talk about China. Um, do you feel that uh, the from your m- memories of um of Mao Zedong and um, Deng Xiaoping and the others. Um, what was their sense of history? Did, did it uh, affect them uh, politically and, and with President Xi today? Uh, how, how affected is he by the concept of the century of shame um, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, for example? Well, in my observation, when I started dealing with the Chinese, I did not know more than elementary things about their history, and of course become very preoccupied with it now, partly because I think that Chinese society operates by a historical experience that infuses its consciousness and so that its leaders can speak about historical events 
with an assurance that one does not find in the West, among Western leaders, and also with not just an intellectual assurance, but with a sense as if they were part of that, as they were still part of that process. And in that process, the humiliation of China for 100 years played the role. But even more, it played the role that China was conceived historically as the, as the central kingdom, that when uh, that the relationship of China to the rest of the world was determined hierarchically in their thinking by the present, uh, by the degree to which other societies approximated their degree of culture, which they never could fully reach. But uh, so when the British envoy in the end of the 18th century appeared, he was treated as a representative of a country that was attempting to gain the favor of the of the emperor and messages were delivered to him and the reply of the letter he brought from the king of england was not handed to him by the emperor but left on the chair on which the emperor sat for for him to pick up and and the reply was that if you are asking for regular contacts, uh, that is unthinkable. But if you want to send an ambassador, then it's, if he's prepared to wear Chinese clothes and live in a Chinese residence and will never be permitted to leave, uh, he will be treated hospitably. That shows the, no, I'm not saying cheap. Yes, that was Lord McCartney, wasn't it? And he refused to do the kowtow as well. And, and it, it wrecked um, Anglo-Chinese relations for some time in the 1770s and 1780s. Didn't it? Exactly. And the, uh, so the, uh, there was a big cultural divide from that, even at that point. And at this moment, I think she does not carry it to that extreme. <laughs> uh, there is there is an underlying uh, a leading current Chinese said to me a few years ago said the difference between Western countries and Chinese countries is that the Western countries have always been relatively small and were therefore very conscious of the domestic structures of others and therefore very involved in the domestic structure of each other. Well, we have always been very large. And our problem is that we may have internal conflicts, and that is our danger. But our society operates with the consciousness of a very large society that does not have to worry about the internal struggles 
And I think this is a concept that is characteristic of what is going on in current relations. And it must be very um, helpful to um, Chinese politicians to be able to make references to the past uh, where they know that the majority of the population, or at least a large proportion of the population, will know what they're talking about, um, which is much more difficult for Western leaders today because of the paucity of historical knowledge amongst the um, amongst the population. Is it, would, Do you think that would be fair? And the paucity of agreement among the population. Yes. I, well, I, you, of course, you can do that in a in a society where you control the um, education in the way that the Chinese can do, but we can't, of course. Something I ask all my guests is, uh, what's your favourite counterfactual? What's your favourite what-if moment of history where history might have turned out differently? Uh, Henry, do you, do you have a favourite counterfactual? Uh, actually, I do. Uh, and it's a relatively obscure event. It is when the British defence minister or war minister, I don't know exactly what his title was, went to Berlin in 1912 and proposed that if Germany would cut down its dreadnought production, Britain would consider a kind of neutrality in European wars. Uh, He did not define exactly what that neutrality would be, and it never reached the point of discussing what degree of dreadnought. But the German emperor turned it down as an insult to his uh, domestic prerogatives. But when one reflects that the German navy of whatever size it was left port only one time in the uh, 1940 in the uh, World War, First World War, and uh, what might have happened if that dialogue had started, whether the war might not have started or whether it would have started under different terms, it would have been easier to to settle. So yes, the Haldane mission, it was called, wasn't it, from Richard Haldane, the secretary, secretary for defence, yes. And the and the and a clear offer was made and, and, and was turned down. Um, and the, it wasn't as though the German Navy was going to be strong enough to destroy the Royal Navy in the, in the North Sea. No, it, it was, it, it was really, for for the emperor's symbolic matter of being as strong as the British Navy, which was precisely what Britain would not allow without resistance. But don't you feel, just to take your your uh, uh, counterfactual one stage further, that if Britain therefore did not um, intervene? Um, on the side of France in 1914, you might have got a, a 1940 situation a quarter of a century earlier. Well, we could have had a 1940 situation, and Britain, faced with that, might have intervened anyway, because it would not permit one country to dominate Europe. And uh, probably should have intervened. But the outcome of the war would have been more of a 
Napoleonic Wars were evicted, were willing, uh, eager to build the defeated back into the European society rather than the Versailles structure, which was untenable. And you wouldn't have got also, of course, if the Great War hadn't broken out, you wouldn't have got the Bolshevik Revolution, you wouldn't have got the rise of the Nazis and the Holocaust. Your your life, of all people's, your life would have been tremendously different, wouldn't it? Not the overthrow. And I'd, I'd be in Germany today teaching in high school. <laughs> you certainly would. And uh, finally, what uh, you'd be a marvellous teacher, by the way, Henry. <laughs> what uh, history book or uh, or biography are you reading at the moment? What what book would you be telling your uh, your German high school <laughs> students to be reading right now? Well, actually, the book I'm reading most intensely right now is by Ray Dalio. It is a book about the rise and fall of civilizations, but based more on their financial evolution. But it traces the history of Britain, Holland, and other societies in America today, uh, more on financial on, on the evolution of financial institutions, which is, has not been my primary interest up to now. Uh, but that is the book that occupies me uh, most. Uh, I'm also, but because I'm working on a book right now about the uh, impact of statesmanship on I, uh, I'm reading books on the nature of statesmanship at the end of the First World War, of what societies thought they were accomplishing or should try to accomplish, because yes. that was one of the great failures of, of history. We share a publisher in Stuart Profit, and he's told me about this new book on uh, statesmanship, and it sounds absolutely fascinating. I think uh, you're a inspiration to every author that you're still publishing books at uh, at the age of, I think you'll be 99 by the time this book comes out, won't it, in, uh, in the okay. summer. And um, thank you so much uh, for uh, for coming on um, on my podcast. I appreciate it enormously, and it's a great uh, honor and a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I've been a great admirer of your book. Thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> I was definitely keeping that in after the edit, Henry. <laughs> All right. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Please join me in the next episode of Secrets of Statecraft when I'll be interviewing Ivan Duque, the president of Columbia. The country, that is, not the university. Or the movie studio. 